This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Uh, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. And I think now we're in about our fifth year. And I want to say before the interview today that uh, we have been running uh, without a budget for five years. <laughs> and uh, we want to keep the podcast free. And we intend to do that. But we now have a button on our website, which allows you to contribute. So if anybody would like to make sure we stay on the air, uh, please do so. And we have an archive with about 230 interviews that is free and available for everyone. And we want to keep it that way. But again, we, we have to figure out some way to keep going. So any support will be greatly appreciated. And we'll continue to have wonderful guests like we have today. Our guest today is Dr. Kim Harris. She is Assistant Professor of African-American Thought and Practice in the Department of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Kim, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you virtually. Yes. <laughs> Kim, I'm delighted that we were able to get you on the show. I, I wanted to, uh, ever since I saw you uh, online, uh, singing uh, a cappella in in the context of of, uh, of another program, um, mm -hmm. and I want to explore your uh, spiritual uh, use of music and other things. Uh, could you begin by giving us a sort of overview or a brief version of your spiritual history and and what brought you to? Uh, the uh, study of theology and the use of music and anything else. Yes, well, I'll, I'll give. I'll begin, of course, with song. <laughs> Good. Let us break bread together on our knees. Let us break bread together. When I fall on my knees With my face to the rising sun Oh, Lord, have mercy on me Now, that song, it's one of the spirituals. The historic name for spirituals are, of course, Negro spirituals. Mm. I grew up singing that in church. I went to a very quiet Presbyterian church in Philadelphia when I was growing up. That was one of my favorite songs. We would sing it once a month on the first Sunday when we had communion. So we had, you know, bread and grape juice and prayers. And we would sing that song. I always wondered, why did it say some of the things it says? Breaking bread. That made sense. We had bread on our knees. Uh, this was Presbyterian church. We didn't have kneelers. Fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun. Well, it wasn't sunrise. And I kept wondering about those things. And I learned in school in about fourth grade that songs were sometimes used as secret codes during a time of Harriet Tubman during the time of the Underground Railroad during the time of enslavement of African Americans. 
And then that song really was one of my favorite songs, thinking about secret codes in the song. Let us break bread together. That could mean that the enslaved people were going to have a secret meeting. But where and when would the meeting be? I fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun. Well, maybe an hour to an hour and a half before sunrise. Get up early in the morning, go to the east where the sun rises, and have a meeting, maybe to plan an escape, maybe just to talk. There's so many things. And another layer of that song, about 15 to 20% of the people taken from their African homelands had Islam as their faith tradition. And they were continuing to practice. So they would have their first morning prayer, an hour to an hour and a half before sunrise, and then have the secret meeting. Hmm. So exciting to me that songs can carry so mm-hmm. much history. Songs can help people be active. Songs can help people get to freedom. And I think that all became, as I learned more and more, a part of the spiritual practice that I had in terms of songs, and in particular, African-American spirituals and freedom songs. Uh, Kim, Kim, I wanted to ask you, it says in your bio that you're a member of the Black Catholic Theological Symposium and the North American Academy of Liturgy. Does mm-hmm. that mean that you are Catholic? And when did, if, yeah. if so, when did that transition take place? Well, that transition took place when I was in college. Uh, I was very involved with my church, uh, with the Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. But very funny because when I when I went to go to college and I went to Temple University right here in Philadelphia, and uh, which is uh, where I grew up. And uh, my mom said to me, you know, she said, well, you know, I, I've always, you know, made you go to church and now you're in college so you can choose whether you want to go or not. And the first thing I said was, I'm not going. Now, there was no real reason to say that. Uh-huh. I enjoyed my church, but it just felt like a little bit of freedom. And that lasted for about two or three weeks. And then I thought, well, you know, what kinds of spiritual practice are you know, what, what is this? Now, interestingly enough, growing up, I went to an overnight camp. And it was a camp uh, just outside of Philly. I stayed there for about two weeks. Sometimes I stayed a month. And they had counselors from around the world, uh, from basically English-speaking countries around the world. And so that meant that we did actually have some counselors from India. And I would see them you know, they would meditate during their time off. And I remember saying, what are you doing? What does that mean? And so, you know, that's when I started learning about some different spiritual practices. I also grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of Jewish uh, families and some of the friends I went to school with uh, were Jewish. And so then I would go to, you know, we all turned 13. And so then I was going to (laughs) mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And, you know, so there were just so many different, different things. And I thought to myself, there's something about spirituality. There's something about spiritual practice. And it just, you know, and I, you know, I'm not quite sure the kinds of things that drew me to the Catholic Church. Some of them, though, were uh, the way the ritual was celebrated. And all of our traditions have different rituals. And I really appreciated the way it was uh, being celebrated. 
in Catholic Church. I also read one of the doctors of the church, Teresa of Avila, she called mm. herself of Jesus. And in reading her works, I saw something that reminded me of what I did when I was a kid, because mom would say, you know, say your prayers before you go to church, uh, oh, before you go to sleep at night. And so I would say my prayers and I would rush through them as fast as I could. And then one night I said, well, you know, this really isn't doing anything for me. And so then I began to say one line of a prayer. And it was at that time it would be our father. And I would say one line and think about it a little bit. And I was about, you know, 13, 14 years old. And, and then I'd say another line and think about it a little bit. By the fourth line, I had fallen asleep. But what I realized when I began reading Teresa of Avila was that she actually suggested that for her sisters, uh, hmm. suggested that for the religious order uh, that she was uh, beginning to found and said that can lead you really toward contemplative prayer. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I was trying that as a kid. Now, I didn't know that as a kid, but, you know, all of these things were part of the spiritual journey, and I've been on quite an interesting one. It sure sounds like it. Uh, <laughs> Kim, um, every spiritual tradition uh, has uh, uses music in one form or another as a form of practice, a form of liturgy. Um, what I've always found so fascinating about um, African-American use of music in a spiritual context is not only the, the if I may say, the, the quality of the music and the, you know, the feeling it gives me, but also its double use in uh, the civil rights movement and in social justice work in general. It, 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 can you ta address that sort of dual use of, of music or uh, this kind of music? Yes. Uh, one thing, and, and, you know, I have a lot of uh, musical teachers, and uh, I was taking a uh, music workshop with, with Issei Barnwell, and, and some of your listeners may know about her. She was one of the uh, early founders of the group Sweet Honey in the Rock. And so I was taking a workshop with her, and she was, you know, we were talking about the spirituals and about music, and also one of the other founders of Sweet Honey in the Rock, Bernice Johnson Reagan. And, and Dr. Reagan always talked about the fact that for people that have been taken from their homelands, taken from the place where you live physically, where you could say, this tree is a special place, this ground that I am walking out is very important, and the ancestors are here. When you're taking from that, you have to create a different set, if, if you will, of real estate. You know, how, what is your spiritual landscape going to be? And for the people that became African-American, some of the spiritual landscape, and of course, a lot of this they brought with them from their African context, but music and dance would be a part of that spiritual landscape. And so you had to be very creative with it because your actual physical homeland, you couldn't be there anymore. And of course, people who are enslaved are going to use whatever resources they have to help them either physically get your freedom 
or to be able to live and have a spiritual life that provides them with dignity and with hope. And so the music carried so much with it and, you know, and it continues to do so. And so, of course, then, you know, when it was time for the civil rights movement, at that time, so many people were coming out of their church experiences. And so they used the songs that they were used to using, but some using, but they would change some of the words. So they might, in church, sing, woke up this morning with my mind, stayed on Jesus, oh yeah, woke up this morning with my mind. Stayed on Jesus. Now, in the civil rights movement, they had not only the church influence, but they were also listening to songs on the radio. So a lot of young people especially were influenced by Motown. So then they would give the song a little something-something so they might start mm. to feel like, I woke up this morning with my mind. Stayed on freedom. Oh, yeah. Woke up this morning with my mind. Stayed on freedom. And then when they got to the middle of the song, that's when they'd really bring that Motown influence. It. They would say, <laughs> gotta walk, walk, you gotta walk, walk, come on and walk, walk go with your mind on freedom. Oh, walk, walk. So, you know, people use what they have, they use what inspires them and they love, and but they also use things to work for freedom. Right. Kim, Kim I wanted to ask you, uh, I'm old enough to remember the civil rights movement of the uh, 60s, and I'm from the New York area. So I was in that area, and I, I remember even as a kid being very inspired by uh, many of the uh, songs that were sung, sung that were associated with the civil rights movement, and, and, uh, and also the learning the stories that were told in those songs. Right mm -hmm. now, it's, uh, it's July 29th, 2020, that we're recording this. We're in the midst of a gigantic movement for civil rights in the United States right now uh, in, in cities nationwide. It, it came up very spontaneously, I thought. And I'm wondering, is music, I, you know, I've been following it as closely as I can and, and participating when I can participate but I'm wondering if music is, is also playing a significant part in the struggle for civil rights that's going on now in this country. Well, what's interesting is that I'm always very specifically listening for the music. Now, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, this, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests against the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many African-Americans, uh, you know, as it, it is happening all around the country. There are times when, if you uh, if you hear some of the older people, some of the elders, they might be singing "We Shall Overcome." Some of the younger people, you know, so that's one of the older right. civil rights songs. Um, younger people are doing some of the same things that the younger people did in the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, back after the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, people were singing just a little bit of a song off the radio, singing, we're going to be all right, we're going to be all right, or I'm going to be all right, I'm going to be all right. So mm. they would take just a little bit 
of a song of um, Kendrick Lamar's song called All Right. And they would just use that chorus as they marched in the street. Now, some of the other people that were involved in that movement, I heard uh, there was a group of, I think they were mostly white uh, people who were in Saint, the St. Louis area. And they went to a symphony concert and they got tickets all together. And sometime right after the intermission, they started to sing, you know, one of the old protest songs. Uh, Which side are you on? Mm. Which side are you on? And they sang that right in the symphony hall. You know, people use Whoa. what they have, right? Yeah. So wow. In in these movements that are happening now, there are a few interesting things going on. First of all, the Black Lives Matter movement did not come out of the black churches in the same kind of way that civil mm. rights movement had. So they didn't have those songs and that type of gathering to rely on in the same way. And yet, like I said, people were, you know, still thinking of what songs they could use to sing. Now, these these days, sometimes I hear people singing uh, Lean On Me. Hmm. You know, you just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. So, you know, you hear that kind of music. Mm-hmm. And some of it has to do with what songs did people grow up singing? What piece of the song can they use that helps them feel unified and wanting to march together? So I would say that it is evolving in a different manner. And some of that has to do with the fact that people aren't coming out of churches. So you don't Mm -hmm. have people with a very similar experience and similar canon of music, you know, but folks are finding their way because music remains an effective uh, method. Now, the other thing that's going on is that some of the, uh, you know, these days I got to put myself in the elder category. <laughs> you know, you, you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're doing some of the things that were happening before. So we, we might take an older song like, if you miss me from the back of the bus and you can't find me nowhere, oh, come on up to the front of the bus. Because I'll be sitting up there. Now, that song that originally comes from Oh, Mary, Don't You Weep. And then If You Miss Me From the Back of the Bus, that's, you know, civil rights, talking about, you know, uh, Rosa Parks. And then these days, you know, I'll, a lot of times I'll sing, If you miss me from the protest march and you can't find me nowhere, oh, oh, oh. Uh, Let's see. I just wrote something new today. I said something like, I'll be filling out my mail-in ballot and I'll (laughs) be voting right there. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) It's in process, but, you know, just continuing to think that the songs can carry so much. Right. And so just knowing that that's the tradition and feeling the freedom to have them carry what you need them to carry. Great. Uh, Speaking of which... I learned from our mutual friend, uh, Chris Chappell, that mm-hmm. um, you, uh, when you lived in upstate New York, were um, did work with one of my all-time heroes, Pete Seeger. Yes, indeed. Yes. 
<laughs> I, I would love to hear what that was about. And obviously music was part of that. It must have been. Yes. Well, uh, it definitely was one of the honors of my life to get to know Pete Seeger uh, toward the end of, of his lifetime. And starting, I believe, in 1968, he and a group of people got together on the Hudson River, and he lived in Beacon, New York, right up above the Hudson River. And at that point, uh, there were parts of the river that were definitely a flowing sewer. So he wanted to, you know, he wanted to help people understand that they need to take care of the river and, you know, how important that is. And so uh, he and some other people eventually started an organization called the Clearwater and the Clearwater organization, part of what they did was to build a replica of a Hudson River sloop and sail up and down the river. They would take school groups out onto the river and show them how to navigate and show them the beauty of the river and, uh, you know, throw a net out into the water and pull up some fish and explain to them what the ecosystem is like. So really an amazing uh, environmental justice organization. And so it was in that context that I got to work uh, with the Pete Seeger. And also in the folk music context, because, uh, you know, a lot of times when you're singing those freedom songs and all the kind of gigs you get, and I was a you know, professional touring musician at that point, you know, we're at folk festivals. And out of the Clearwater organization came the Great Hudson River Revival, which was a folk festival. It actually still is a folk festival that continues to go on now. It's been going on, you know, since the, uh, the 70s, 1970s. Uh, Kim, you still have an association with, as we mentioned before, with the Catholic Church. You're a member of the Black Catholic Theological, uh, Theological Symposium. I grew up Catholic, and I do remember in the 60s the... Uh, Catholic Church was very involved. Many members of the Catholic Church, many clergy, uh, were involved in the civil rights movement. I haven't seen much presence of Catholics, of Catholicism, of uh, Catholic clergy in any of the, uh, the demonstrations and protests that I've seen. Maybe I'm missing the boat, but uh, is there still a great involvement from the church in, uh, and a great commi commitment, commitment at this time toward uh, civil liberties, toward civil rights? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that. It, it's it's very interesting because I would say in the 1960s there were there were some significant Catholics, including many Black Catholics, that were right. involved in the civil rights movement. Not as many as you would think, though. Right, right. Um, you know, actually, in a few weeks, I'm going. Uh, a, a friend of mine who was a professor at Siena College, uh, up in the Albany area. He's going to give a lecture on black Catholics in the civil rights movement, because a lot of times people don't realize that, you know, one of the real uh, heroes, and I'll call her that, of the Freedom Ride was uh, Diane Nash. And Diane Nash was a very committed, you know, Catholic person hmm. at that point in her life. Uh, so there's this whole set of black Catholics that were involved in the civil rights movement. There were white Catholics and priests who were involved in it. Some of it depended on where you were, what city you were in, and what was going on, because there was a real local nature of that. These days, 
you know, there are unfortunately many Catholics that uh, really support the status quo, uh, you know, unfortunately. Right. Uh, mm. Yet you can see among the bishops, the bishops have actually just issued last year a letter called Open Wide Our Hearts. And it really it's talking about not only uh, personal responses to racism, including racism within the church, but also systemic racism. And then there were some that were saying that that letter needed more on systemic racism. And so there are people who are working on that and working on getting, uh, you know, getting groups of Catholics and specific parishes together to talk about it. And, you know, what's it like to be a black Catholic person? There are times when I walk into a, a you know, mostly white Catholic church, and people would look at me as if wondering why I'm there. They don't even realize that there mm. are right. aren't all aren't all black people Baptists. Yes, I think you know all black <laughs> people. You're probably Baptists or Methodists, but mm. there are about four million uh, black Catholics in the United States. Mm. So, you know, there. I would say, as a church, we have we have a great deal of work to do. Uh, and it is, it's getting done. We're beginning to have some conversations that are, uh, as they say, those, you know, uncomfortable conversations. And, and now, so that, that's what's going on now. Mm-hmm. And Kim, you are now uh, assistant professor of African-American thought and practice at a Jesuit uh, university in Los Angeles, Loyola Marymount. I've been to LMU many, many times, um, and I know it's a very progressive place. I'm curious, when in your courses, I, I assume you, you've taught courses there. Um, yes, yes, I've the, been there, I think, what, five, six years now. <laughs> ah, okay. So um, I assume... Uh, the white students take your courses too. Is is it? Uh, uh, do you f- get a mix of uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds who are interested enough to take those courses? Well, the the course I teach two different kinds of courses. I teach one of the core courses, which is in search of a way, and in search of a way. And I inherited that title. I love that title for the course. Uh, and what that is about is talking about different religious traditions. Yeah. So, you know, Christianity and Islam and, and Hinduism, Buddhism, Catholicism, you know. So we do different religious traditions. And what's always interesting uh, for the students is that they think that when they come to that course, they're just going to learn, you know, nuts and bolts. You know, this is the theology of you know, the Catholic Church has this theology and, you know, the Methodist Church has that theology and, you know, Jewish traditions have these different uh, branches of the family. But whenever I teach that kind of course, I'm always asking the question, you know, how does it relate to the society? How does it relate to social justice issues in particular, how does that tradition relate in the different places where people are? And then I also always ask that question, the question, uh, I was working with a student last year and thinking about uh, what is the African-American experience in Buddhism? And, uh, mm-hmm. and then 
about, you know, so there, there are many different ways to approach the courses. And with that course, the, you know, as professors, we really can approach it in different ways. And one of my students said, well, you know, are we always going to talk about how the traditions relate to society? And I thought to myself, well, you know, these traditions aren't just out there in the air, you know, just doing nothing. You know? So they're either, you know, mm -hmm. various parts of the tradition might be supporting the status quo. Other mm -hmm. parts of the tradition might, you know, might be very progressive and working for justice uh, in, in many different ways. So and then one of the other courses that I teach is the cross and the lynching tree. Mm. Wow. That course uh, we begin and it's based on the work of Dr. James Cohn. And I attended Union Theological Seminary in New York City and he was one of my professors. Uh, and so we're using his work and we begin talking about the fact that when you think about crucifixion and specifically the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, once again, it wasn't just a thing that happened to him and him alone with two other people that happened to also be crucified. You know, one of the important questions I ask my students, I always say, who did the Romans crucify? And the answer is basically everybody, you know, because there were people you could be, crucifixion was very much like lynching mm. in terms of it was public, it was used for intimidation, it might be used as a punishment for a crime, but a lot of times it was also used if someone had, you know, stepped out of bounds in terms of their response to, you know, the government, you know, so cruci crucifixion and lynching were very much uh, analogous with each other. Uh, and uh, many of my students don't even know what lynching is. Oh, my. That wow. history in the United States and how, you know, now they probably heard the word now more than they had before because the killing mm. of George Floyd was was a lynching. That was, yeah. you know. Right. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. And Dr. Cohn was asking the question of, why has so much of United States Christian Christian practice and Christian gatherings, groups, and denominations really been supportive of things such as lynching? I mean, it's you know, and it's it's a hard question. It's a very hard question. Yeah. And to think about our religious traditions as being prophetic. You know, are they working toward justice? Are they trying to? Uh, teach things that are going to lead toward a more just society or are they more interested in uh, priestly aspects so purity and ways that people can be so that that will have help them get to heaven however you know or to another place or you know so he's asking those kinds of questions and that is one of the courses that I teach. Uh, Kim, you, you, you teach and work with young people, college-age students. Since, since the uh, demonstration, since the uh, uh, Black Lives Movement has really gained momentum, since the killing of George Floyd and the reaction to that, have you noticed the students, college students, who may before have seemed more uh, apathetic, seem charged like people were in the 60s that I remember, that we've got to make change, we've got to turn things around. Uh, have you noticed this, and have you noticed it, if you have noticed it, 
have you noticed it both in uh, uh, white students and students of color uh, amongst all students? Yes, I, you know, it's interesting because I think it's going to be more of a question as we come back into the semester because as the demonstrations were really getting going, we were moving our courses online and just trying to keep our heads above water. You yeah. Know, where we right. were semester. Now, with that being said, there certainly were LMU students, uh, black and white, that got out in front of the campus. And this is why they weren't even living on the campus anymore. But they had a big demonstration out in the front of the campus. There are people absolutely who are part of the LMU community that have been you know, students, staff, and faculty and administration that have been, you know, in the forefront of some of the protests. Now, as a community, though, we've really been scattered because uh, I think right after spring break, you know, we never came back after spring break, which was in March. Mm -hmm. So that's been different to have, you know, that kind of, of, of uh, you know, instead of being the kind of community that we would have been, which would have been we uh, we would have had some demonstrations on campus. We may have gone out all together. You know, there are things that we would have done, and we weren't able to do that. And we were spending a lot of time trying to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. Now, all that being said, as we get ready to come back, and we'll you know we'll continue to be online uh, for uh, for this semester, we'll still be talking about some kinds of things, you know, I'll be getting together with the Black Student Union. Uh, I'm not the moderator for the for, for BSU, but I definitely uh, attend meetings and, you know, try to keep up with what, what the students are thinking about and what kind of support they need. So I think it's going to be very interesting. I can't exactly tell you how it's going to be because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I did see some uh, LMU people out on Lincoln Boulevard with signs and stuff. So I was happy to see that. Yes, yes. I know <laughs> there are probably some that are keeping that going, but we definitely had one time when it was, you know, it, we said everybody that's still in the area, come on out here and we're going to have a demonstration. Yeah. You know? um, Kim, we have to wrap it up. Uh, okay. It's been delightful. I wish we could spend more time. I want to let people know uh, to go uh, to YouTube where there's a wonderful video uh, called An Evening with Kim Harris, Song of Faith, Songs of Freedom, African-American Freedom Traditions. I, found, I, I just loved watching it and hearing the great music and the uh, educational experience. Absolutely. Um, and I wonder if uh, you want to say anything uh uh, final words before we leave or sing. A few yeah, oh, sing. Well, I, Give I, us I, a I little. <laughs> I, I I have a I have a request. Yes. Um, because I heard you sing it, but if you could give us a little, I think at this time with the pandemic and all the things that are going on, a lot of people are feeling like uh, motherless children. Mm. Uh, so maybe you could give us some of that. Yes. Okay. And thank you so much for having me. Thank uh, you. Great to talk to you. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. 
Sometimes I feel like a motherless child all away from a home. Thank you, Kim. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much. You are welcome. You're welcome. Be good. We'll uh, hope to meet you in person one of these days. And uh, everybody listening, go online. Uh, you'll see links to uh, Kim's website and uh, stay safe. Dennis, any final words? Yeah, you'll find that all at www.spiritmatterstalk.com. And again, uh, we... we uh, I have a button now on our website, which uh, gives you the opportunity to uh, keep us on the air and uh, anything you can contribute on a regular basis or on a one-time basis or on any basis whatsoever, <laughs> we would greatly appreciate because uh, we do want to keep the show going. So thank you for your uh, potential support and we look forward to it. Thanks. And Bye, Jim, everybody. Thank so Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Bye-bye, everybody. Stay safe. <laughs>